Well, this is George Sayer on the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman, and my guest today, I am I'm actually very excited to interview this man. I think I say that a lot, but but I'm, I'm really excited because I mean, that was a great smile, man. Some of my guests are kind of, uh, they, they're, they're stingy with their laughs and smiles, but I can tell this is going to go well already. This is Matt Fender, a ruling elder out of Virginia. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, George. Appreciate you having me on. Yes, absolutely. So why don't you tell our guests a little bit about uh, like where you serve, how long you've been a ruling elder, and uh, maybe a little bit about your family, just to get us to know you a little bit. And then we'll, we'll, do, uh, we'll get more into it then. All right. That sounds good. So I have the privilege to be a ruling elder at All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. Um, we're located in the city of Richmond, uh, right next to the Virginia Museum. If anybody knows where, where that is, church was founded in 1984, and I have been there for about uh, 13 years. Um, I've been a ruling elder since February 14th, 2016. Valentine's um, Day. Yeah, that's right. I'll remember it. I, uh, I had felt called to be a ruling elder pretty much since I knew what one was and was providentially hindered for a number of years. I joined the PCA in 1998. Mm. Um, after a friend invited me to church right after I moved to New York City. And I went to Redeemer Presbyterian Church and heard Tim Keller preach. And that was my first wow. exposure to the Reformed faith. So I am. Um, some people might think that uh, I'm sort of on the conservative side, and I probably had some theological disagreements with Dr. Keller, but I will always owe him a great debt for introducing me to the Reformed faith. That's a great story, and especially, mm -hmm. I mean, that's early, earlier Keller before he was writing books and um and and you are a gentleman conservative side but you're you're definitely a gentleman i i gotta ask how old you are because there's this uh you you were highlighted as one of the the new young voices in the pca and i always i always thought and, and then somebody actually said that you were 38 years old and i almost rolled over because like so how old are you matt i am 49 okay we're the same age i'm 48 so uh, man, you seem much more mature, and you're definitely smarter than than me. So I still feel I still feel bad about, it, but not as bad as if you were 38. Well, it's kind of you to say, but I guess you know, young when it comes to governing the church is a is a relative thing, right? And so that, yes, um, I mean they do call it an elder for a reason. That's right, and and 50 is the new 40. So uh, I how does by the way I I haven't spoken to a lot of people like. As you look at 50, which is right there, and that's the way I feel about it, like, how do you feel about that? Um, I feel pretty good about it. I, I'm very happy with my uh, the way things are going and um, my family and my career, and I couldn't, couldn't be more pleased. You know, just I kind of feel like at, at this age, I'm like in the thick of life. Ah. Uh, like, this is, this is the meat of it. This is, this is it. You know, fire on all cylinders, you know, you, you kind of ramp up and now, you know, you go as hard as you can. And then another, you know, 15 years or so, you probably start slowing down a little bit. But this is a this is great. And I didn't you ask me my family. I, I my wife might listen to this. So I need to make sure yeah, I, I do live in Richmond, Virginia, in the city with my wife, Rebecca, and my three kids and my two Labradors. Um, I'm occasionally accused of liking dogs more than people. Um, I won't comment on that any, any further, but I do love my dogs. But um, we're very grateful to have three great kids. They attend a, a classical Christian school there in the city of Richmond um, and have been there ever since they were four years old. Um, what, what are their ages? They are 14, 12, and 10. Two girls okay. and a boy. Wow. Two, two girls and a boy. Okay. I, mine are, are 16, 14, and 12, two boys and a girl. Oh, we're, we're pretty similarly situated then. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I, I got married a little later, but not really late. Like I was... 30. So we didn't start having kids until my, uh, my young thirties, I guess. Yeah. And so you were a little bit later than me. Uh, yeah. Well, so I actually got married when I was 26, but we oh. then took turns going to graduate school. So we delayed having children because we didn't want to risk, you know, if it was a health problem or something, we wanted to, you know, to be I mean, a position where we were able to financially support ourselves. So I, I got my wife through business school at the university of Virginia. And then she, uh, she was able to get a job and, and work while I, uh, I went to law school. Okay. Wow. That's a great story too. And and her name's Rebecca. And I don't, I can't even tell you how many PCA pastors have married Rebecca's because for some reason, do you, have you found that or no? Like, I mean, look within the church, you know, there's certain names that, you know, it, it's just, it is what it is. And, and one of my daughters is named Rachel. So there's often some confusion with Rebecca and Rachel. Oh, there you and go. Who's whose mother and all that sort of stuff. So. <laughs> oh, that's, 
That's great, Matt. Okay, so so you're in Richmond, so that's where GA is going to be next year, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, we're super excited to be hosting everybody. And um, I'm my, my aforementioned wife, she's chairing the uh, women's and children's programs for next year as part of the host committee. So she came to uh, GA this year in Memphis to kind of get the lay of the land and see how it was done. And um, a lot of folks are stepping up and volunteering, and, and there's a, a lot of work to, that's got to happen between now and then. But um, it's exciting. It'd be a great way to serve the church. And we were excited. So when the request came in, from the administrative committee that they had been approached by the Richmond Convention Center and they were considering having GA there. I was moderator of James for Presbytery that year. And so it kind of came to me and we had a little resistance of, gosh, can we pull this off? We're not that big a Presbytery. It's going to take a lot of money. And so we had the idea to co-host. And so that's what we're doing. We're co-hosting with Blue Ridge and Tidewater, which are also Virginia Presbyteries. And then also very excitingly, if that's a word, with uh, Korean Capital. So there's never hadn't had a Korean Presbytery host General Assembly before. Oh, that's great. So they and they've jumped in. They put some people in the committees and are bringing in volunteers. And so we think that would be a great um, opportunity to you know build the unity of the church and, and work together with our Korean brethren. That that is that's awesome. That's a, one of the one of the th- things I love about doing this podcast is I get some some insider and and new information really quick. So that's that's great. So I'm going to have to have you on next spring. Uh, as as GA plans are ratcheting up and, and we're getting ready to go to GA again, I'll have to have you back on for for people. Um, so, by the way, we uh, so I'm in Piedmont Triad Presbyterian. We are a small presbytery, about twelve. I, I should know this, twelve to fifteen churches, but a, but a lot of smaller churches. And we hosted uh, in 2016 or 2017. I don't remember because I wasn't here then, but I remember the concerns were exactly what you said, like being a small presbytery, like, can we really pull this off? And apparently, uh, ruling elders from the churches and and members from the churches really stepped up and it turned out to be a real blessing. So that was in, uh, Greensboro. Um, yeah, I was there 2017. Uh, And that was, that was a great year. Um, and let me also say, uh, George, I want to, um, that if you need to talk to somebody about it, um, teaching elder Harry Long and ruling elder Rich Lino are co-chairing our host committee. And I would, uh, I would, would introduce you to those guys uh, to the extent you want to get the, the scoop on what's going down. Oh, they, that's they, great. They some great work. Yeah. Well, Rich, Rich, Rich is a friend. I, I was sad that he wasn't at GA this year. I, I think he wasn't at GA. I think he was out of the country or something and I've had him on the podcast. So that's true. Maybe I'll have the group of you on together. That'd be great. <laughs> Wow, what a powerhouse uh, presbytery you guys must have then, with with that that kind of ruling elder um, expertise uh, among y'all. Do you have a good ruling elder involvement in presbytery? I think so. I think it's built up over time. You know, we we encourage it. We're always trying to push people to, hey, you know, you can't complain if you don't participate. And and I know there are presbyteries that have their meetings during business hours during the week. I, I don't really get that, but ours is not. Our our meetings are. That we have three on a Saturday and then our summer meetings a Thursday night. So it's just to allow rule and elder participation. And I was really pleased this year. It's been building the meeting. Our I guess it was our um, winter meeting, January meeting, when we voted on last year's overtures. We had more ruling elders present than teaching elders at Whoa. the presbytery meeting. And so it was you really encouraged by that. That, that. That's amazing. Yes, I, I, I don't understand the meetings in during the week. Uh, our presbytery is on Saturday and... I don't mind it. It's four times a year, but it it it, it ensures that we can get a lot of ruling elders there, and so uh, that that that's a good thing. So Matt, I I actually do have a, I got a picture I want to pull up. I didn't tell you about this. I got to see if it's open on my computer. It is. I want to I want to see how I can share it because I thought you were going to come out all stoic like we're used to. Um, like we're used to seeing you on on the floor, just very very serious. But you've already kind of you've come out with a smile and uh, share. Wait a minute. I practiced my smile in the mirror ahead of time. Did just you? you? Yeah. <laughs> just for me, I can't pull the picture up. What I was gonna say is we're used to seeing you all dressed up. Even now you're in a suit. You're ju- you just came out of the courthouse actually. But I have an amazing picture of you in a Hawaiian shirt uh, at the rendezvous barbecue joint on on that Wednesday night that I was trying to pull up and I and I can't and you're wearing a ball cap so uh Matt knows how to have fun I I, I would say maybe I'll maybe I'll uh I, what I'll do is I will put that in the video when we when I go to editing do you know what I'm talking about I do I do yeah no I, I definitely changed clothes for that I wanted to relax a little bit and uh, signal that you know I, I like to when it's time to work dress for work <laughs> and then when you're done with work you know I go home every day and change my clothes and um you know 
sort of signal that to myself and to my family psychologically that I'm, I'm done with that and it's time to do other things. There, there you go. There you go. Well, let's get into business. People, well, actually, I, I, in my experience, people like this part of the, the stuff, but they do want to hear about the business. So, Matt, I got to say, I mean, you and I haven't met. We met last year at General Assembly. You would not remember it. I just came up and said hi to you. And I uh, said, you know, we talked a little bit this this GA. But when I saw you last year presenting the Minority Report for Overture 15 and just different various speeches you made on the floor of General Assembly, like my impression immediately was like, man, this guy knows what he's doing as a churchman. Like you, you just, you just seem like you're built for it. And I don't know if that's the, the legal giftings you have as a lawyer uh, that, you know, the, that our polity comes natural to you or you've worked at it, but maybe you can, you could walk us through it. How'd you become interested in our polity? You're, you're a relatively new ruling elder. I mean, not brand new, but you know, some guys are ruling elders for 20 years or something. You said 2016. So, um, How'd you become interested in the polity of the PCA and, and involved in the courts of the church? Um, so, gosh, I, I I think the Lord just prepared me for it for a long time, to be honest. I mean, when I was in high school, you know, I was in the in the Model UN team every year and I went and did that. I went to nationals my senior year for student congress. You know, <laughs> so I, I had uh, sort of built up this kind of, you know, parliamentary procedure knowledge, uh, at least mm. a little bit for, for a long time. Um, was always interested in those kinds of things. And I think you ask, you know, does being a lawyer help me? I, maybe just the same kind of inclinations and ways of thinking that make you good at being a lawyer, a particular litigator, also apply to navigating the courts of the church, right? And that, that is knowing how to operate in a structured, rules-based environment, which if you think about it, you know, it seems like every year at GA, I'm not sure I heard it this year, but most other years, there's at least one speech where somebody stands up and says, I don't know anything about the BCO or Robert's Rules of Orders, but I just want a blank, right? And I was just kind of like, dude, just sit down, stop. You know, I mean, we, you know, this, this year we had almost 2,300 commissioners, right? If we didn't have some rules, we would accomplish exactly nothing, right? Because mm -hmm. everybody in the room is pretty much used to being in charge, right? I mean, 70% of those guys are teaching elders. A good chunk of those are pastors, and I say, I mean, installed as a pastor somewhere, you know, where you're used to standing up at the pulpit every week and, and you know, leading the service and giving a sermon. And so, you know, it's these are all leaders and we can't all stand up and talk at the same time. Right. There has to be some way of progressing and moving forward. The same is true at Presbytery. It's smaller, but you still you got to have rules. And right. so learning how to work within those rules to accomplish, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, that's what we do in litigation. Right. We have rules of civil procedure in every court that we have to follow. And, and I always feel like. I do, you know, if you know, how can you play if you don't know the rules, you know, so I tend to rely heavily on that at work. And I think the same thing when I first, you know, was, was getting involved with the church and I think it was my second PCA church, Trinity Present in Charlottesville, they had a book table and at the book table, you know, they had some books and they had a Trinity hymnal and they had a book of church order. And I was like, oh, I'm getting that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I bought one and that was probably 2005, 2006, something like that. And, uh, and read it, you know, and thought, okay, that gave me some sense of how we, how we operate. Um. So I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's it it's helpful. You know, people often talk about the BCO as being dry. First of all, I, I find a lot of wisdom in it. A lot of many of the sections are actually very rich theologically, but it's just good that we don't have to make things up on the fly. Like we have agreed upon guidance, and uh, and and I'm grateful for men who who know it. Do you do you basically have it memorized? That's what I want to know. About. <laughs> Come on. No, not by, not by any means. Not by any means. And I don't think anybody does. But but you know what chapter things are in. Eh, I can look at the index. I mean, you, you kind of, you know, the basic structure of it, right? Is every, everybody sure. does when you're examined, right? It's, well, mm -hmm. you know, gosh, we've got the, you know, the form of government, the rules of discipline and the director of public worship. And then stuck behind that, you've got the rules of assembly operation and the operating manual for the SJC. And so if you kind of understand those parts, you know, you kind of know where to go. You look at the index. I mean, honestly, I feel like the more I work with the BCO, as different scenarios come up in the courts of the church, that's how you really get to know it, right? If, mm. if you if you hand the book to to a young guy like I you know I did when I bought one, you can read it and you can sort of appreciate it, but you don't really get it until you've worked through the various provisions, until you've stepped through the ordination of a examination of a pastor, you know, then you step through the organization of a church, and you step through a discipline case and an appeal and a complaint and a protest. And, you know, because once you have to, like, look at the rule and think about it in the context of some actual facts, you know, a live situation, 
it just makes it much more real to you. And you're going to remember it, right? You're going to remember what, you, that, what that thing that you had to work out that time when nobody knew what to do, as opposed to just sort of paging through it. Yes, that, that's good. You know, one thing I do when I moderate session meetings or we just have meetings is I, I don't just presume upon my knowledge of the BCO. I will reference it, put it up on slides, whatever, because I'm trying to train the other teaching elders and ruling elders in the room where things are coming from and how we think uh, consistently w within our framework of of, of the pol of our polity. And I think I think that's important and helpful in training others so that we all kind of can operate from our agreed upon way of operating, <laughs> you know, as opposed to like, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? You know, we have to answer, well, because the Book of Church Order doesn't allow us to do that, you know? So I don't know if you found that in your own, in your own experience, or is everybody on your session just really well, uh, well in tune and, and informed on the BCO? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, not, I wouldn't say any of us are well informed, but we, we we always have one or two laying on the table, and we'll we'll you know, pull it out. And usually, you know, we know enough about it to know where to look and to know that gosh, we had to look that up, and um and we'll absolutely refer to it in the midst of the meeting. But you know, the the other thing I'd say about having rules, and particularly as you said, I think there is a lot of wisdom and experience contained in, in our rules in, in the BCO, is that you need it most when things are hardest. Ah, when you're all getting along. When you're sitting around the table and everybody's smiling and everybody wants to do the same thing, then yeah, it's not that big a deal. Somebody pulls out the book, say, okay, we got to do one, two, three. Great. Let's do that. All good. Right. But when you really need it is when you're not in agreement, right? When there's, when there's, when there's friction, when there's different opinions and you're trying to, you know, decide what decision you're going to go, that's when having a robust set of rules that are agreed to in advance, it helps you work through that conflict and govern the church in accord, frankly, in accord with biblical principles. If we go back to Acts 15, right, you see how the men go around the room and they all speak, and they make a decision, they reach consensus. I mean, that's that's what we do. And, and there's right. a reason we're Presbyterians, right? I, mm -hmm. One of the things I've been saying this year is that, you know, we got to own being Presbyterian, right? We're not ashamed of it. Um, we're proud of it, right? Because it's biblical. Yes. No, that, yes, that's good. And, and I've said that often with discipline when it sort of comes up like people, where communication has broken down in a in a situation that is is could be a discipline case and discipline finally has to get in, enacted as far as like an official process you know I mean, we're always doing church discipline but and then people kind of feel like it's mean or whatever you know and and they want to do some alternate route to get to the answer and, and I, I've said look th this is the mechanism that we have church discipline and the procedures that we have in our book of church order when communication has broken down, when we can't get to just a person repenting on their own, we have a process. We, we've tried this alternate thing you want to do, and, and here we are. And so this will now formalize how we're able to go through something, get to the truth, and uh, and come to a place of repentance if a person needs to do that. And so I just find people are often to, to do church discipline, which, of course, the BCO really helps guide us through. Well, and just think about this, George. What what are the three marks of a true church? Preaching of the word, uh, proper doing of the sacraments, and um, the church discipline. Right. So we don't do church discipline. You're not. A, you're not. We're a not the church. church. That's right. right. I absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It's not something we're ashamed of. Now that said, as you point out, it's not in every case or even most cases that we resort to the rules of discipline and right. a formal investigation or a charge. Those things are relatively rare. Most of the yes. time, it's it's an informal admonishment. And if you think about our doctrine of our office of elder, right? We have, you know, some powers that we exercise singly, right? Not everything, you know, some, some, your, your ability to admonish someone, to encourage them to teach, those are all things you exercise as a single elder. But when we sit together as a, as a session or as a presbytery, well, then we have another set of powers that yes. we exercise jointly. And and that's that's more formal and, and rightly so, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Good. Good. So one thing, I mean, you talked about the the guy who stands up and says, "I'm not sure what I want to do," and you know, and 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 I think you know, in small presbyteries, I think that's fine. But you, like you said, you don't want to do that on the floor of general assembly. And man, I remember in past years, it has it didn't happen this year, and I think Fred did a just a phenomenal job of of moderating and, and keeping us moving. But I remember in past years, people from the floor would take it upon themselves to like 
make a motion to think they're going to speed things up and then we'd lose an hour in their silly motion and uh I think Fred has said, or, uh, you know, people have kind of said, like, if you're new to GA, like, let the people who are more experienced speak. And and every, what you're thinking will probably come up. A lot of the arguments that I've wanted to make, I know that if I if I wait long enough, somebody smarter and more eloquent than me generally makes the argument I want to make. Uh, in, in a room of 2,000 people, it's pretty rare that somebody's having a completely unique thought that needs to be shared, you know. But what I've what I've appreciated about you, and again, maybe it's it's your training as a lawyer is, and I don't have an exact example in my mind. I remember it happened more last year. But you would stand and help help the court, like you, you're that on the spot with seeing what's happening and raising. Well, RAO says this, or the BCO says that. Um, do, do you know what I'm talking about at all? That we're not uh, a speech for or against something, but procedural. And you've helped yeah, no, from time to time, and I, I, I don't know that a specific one is jumping out at me, but I, yeah. particularly like in Overture's committee. And let me say this: I, I think for folks that aren't real familiar with GA, most of the work of GA doesn't happen on the floor; it happens in the committees. That's right, right, and that includes things like RPR nominating committee that that are sort of quasi permanent special or special committees that happen before, and it also includes a committee of commissioners that happen on site, right? Because we can't debate everything in a room with twenty three hundred guys. So that's why what comes to the floor is very limited. There's not really new business. You generally can't amend stuff very much. You know, most of the time it's up or down, A or B, you know, and, and it has to be that way. That's the only way we could get through it. Otherwise, we'd be there for weeks. So to the extent, you, you know, you're interested in GA, you want to get more involved, sign up to be on a committee. You know, volunteer for RPR or nominating committee, or better yet, just sign up for a committee of commissioners. You know, most presbyteries don't send somebody to all the committees of commissioners. There's almost always a spot available. You know, even if it's one that doesn't seem that important to you, it's important to the people that work for that current committee, right? It's important to somebody. So yes. show up, listen, participate. You know, we're supposed to be doing review and control. After all, our our, our staff, our national staff, who we, we love very much and are grateful for their efforts, but they work for the General Assembly, and we have a duty to the church to exercise oversight. So, you know, it, you know, step up, be on a committee, and, and you'll be amazed what you can, can do. But, and I would say to you also this, George, I think a lot of the people in our presbytery might um, – think that I'm a little overactive at standing up at the mic and making motions, trying to move things along. But, you know, I think the key to that is, one, know the rules. And I'm not saying you got to know everything perfectly, but you need a basic understanding of parliamentary procedure. You need a basic, a rough outline of Robert Schulz of order, how they work. What are the basic motions? What's the precedence of those motions? Kind of how do they interact? And I, and I got to give a shout out here to um, my friend Jacob Gerber, uh, teaching elder, and who uh, wrote a fabulous little booklet on Robert mm. Schulz of Order for Presbyters. It was uh, put out by, um, by the Presbyterian Polity website and the Gospel Reformation Network jointly. And I, we see the GRN coffee mug being held up there, blatant plug, but they uh, they went in together and published this booklet. It was distributed at the GRN uh, luncheon at GA this year and also at the GRN conference. Uh, I suspect there's probably a few copies floating around. If somebody wants one, contact the GRN. But Jacob, you used to be a professional parliamentarian before you went to um, seminary. And so he has, has put together a really handy 20-way, one-page booklet to give you an introduction to parliamentary procedure. So if you're intimidated by the tome that is Robert Schulz of Order, newly revised 12th edition, um, <laughs> that booklet might be a, a good place to start. So one, no. know the rules. That That's great. I'll put the link actually in the show notes for this because uh, I, I think, like you said, PCA Polity, you can easily get it there. The GRN was giving it out at their events. But now I'm not sure how somebody would, would get that. But that's been uh, really helpful. I got one for all for everybody on our session. I didn't know Jacob was a parliamentarian before TE. That's that's interesting uh, fact there. But I, I want to talk about something that you you said because that's kind of part of the purpose of why I do these is how to encourage involvement. And uh, just released this week, so the last interview I had was with Steve Dowling, and we were talking about r really what you were just discussing. So Steve was the, the chair of the Overtures Committee and just how much work actually happens before things get to the assembly floor. And we were reflecting on how, well, I pointed out to him, I don't think it occurred to him, but every Overtures Committee recommendation passed this General Assembly. And to me, that mm -hmm. just speaks to the power of of our system. So the Overtures Committee has 130 or 140 people working on the overtures that come up from Presbyterian churches and individuals. 
they edit the language, they make recommendations, they refer them back, whatever they do with them, but they come to the floor as a recommendation from overtures. And now the assembly, yes, we had good debates and I think they were good, but we took every single one. We took the, the recommendation of the Overs Commit overtures committee after that dialogue. And I think that really speaks to our system because yeah, how can you do that with 2000 people on the floor otherwise? Yeah, no, that's definitely right. And also, you know, for, for our listeners, there ought to be 176 men on that overtures committee. Here, here. You know, each presbytery gets one teaching elder and one ruling elder, but some don't send anybody and many That's don't right. send a ruling elder. That's right. So if there's only 130, that's because people aren't showing up. And so, right. you know, encourage and, men to show up. Well, yeah, and, and, and what I've faced when we've looked to nominate ruling elders is, is often guys haven't felt equipped for it. And what I said is, well, just like the General Assembly, you're only going to have maybe, I don't know, I'll throw a number out there. It's probably wrong. 10% in the Overtures Committee that are actually speaking, like 20 guys or less. Everybody else is following the, the dialogue and the debate and then voting their, their conscience. And so certainly send the most qualified person. But, but short of that, send somebody because you're a churchman who's equipped by God to hear dialogue, debate, to make good decisions, and you'll you'll be able to take part in it. The other thing, like the ruling elder that came with me, you, you met him that night, Wednesday night, Kevin Miller, he's a younger guy. Um, he sat in on overtures most of Monday and Tuesday, except for when he had his own committee to go to. And that's another great way to learn because you just, you, you get to learn and experience parliamentary procedure. You also get to hear the dialogue and debate before it hits the General Assembly. And so I think that's a great way to do it. And to your point about being on a committee of commissioners, yeah, I mean, some some committees only meet for two hours before the assembly. It's just a great way to be involved. And I would say this year, every committee of commissioners did really interesting work because everybody got referred over to seven. That's right. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> every single committee kind of had to deal with that one. And I'm so glad overtures, you and overtures just, uh, you assumed it and made a great recommendation and it, it, it had the ability to derail the assembly and it really went off without a hitch. And I'll just take that from the Lord. The first thing we do Tuesday night was, uh, it just went so smooth. Yeah. Any thought on that, by the way, like you guys decision to take an overture based on what the RAO said, but it wasn't originally given to you and you, you assumed it on your own. Yeah. I probably don't want to comment on that too much uh, for fear of being contentious. But, um, you know, this this was in a lot of ways maybe the review and control general assembly. You know, that yes. was like the big theme was really just, just focusing on our, our responsibility to exercise review and control over the presbyteries and also over the permanent committee. And Overture 7 was part of that, right? Overture 7 was, you know, writing some language into the rules of assembly operation to require the permanent committees to, to put more information in their reports. And there was a disagreement about um, where that overture should have been referred, you know, as to which, you know, committees it should have gone to, whether that should have included the overtures committee. And there was, you know, some parliamentary wrangling that occurred over that, some speeches back and forth. But I was really pleased that, you know, by the time it came out of the overtures committee, we were in agreement. You know, there was an amendment and everybody was, everybody was pleased and it went through. And so I felt like there, that process worked. Again, we, we kind of worked through our rules. We had some debate. And it was good. And if I can circle back just for a minute, you asked me, you know, how do you be prepared to raise good points of order and make good motions? Yes. First is know the rules. Sorry, know the rules. Second is prepare. And that's something I've definitely learned in my law practice, right? When I when I show up for a trial, I show up for hearing whatever, I want a lot of stuff by just being more prepared than the other guy. Read everything in advance. Think it through. Look up any references that you need to make, right? If, if, there's, if there's a proposed amendment to the BCO, well, you better go read that section of the BCO and you better go read the other sections that relate to it. Understand how it works. Somebody's making a proposed amendment to the Rules of Assembly Operation. Well, have you read that chapter from the Rules of Assembly Operation? Do you understand how it works? How all this stuff comes together? Because if you haven't done that, you're probably not going to be able to, in good conscience, vote on this amendment because you don't really know what you're voting on. But if you've done all that work in advance and you aren't trying to figure it out on the fly, and that's going to free your brain space up to follow the proceedings and mm -hmm. be ready to do the stuff that you need to do on the floor because you're not going to have to look at each over and say, oh, what's this overture about? Because instead, you've already read it, you've made some notes, and you're ready to go. Yes, that's that's right. That brings up something else I want to talk to you about, but I'll have to I'll, – I'll, I'll say it, and then we'll come back to it. But the um, 
the electronic documents in the share file. Um, but to your point, first of all, I don't think I don't think you're being contentious. I think I think at the end of what happened with Overture Seven, everybody realizes the wisdom. I, I hope of of that it should have gone to overtures, because sending it to eleven different committees. I understand the. Uh, permanent agents, uh, permanent committees and the agencies. I understand the heart behind it. It affects them, but you can't have 11 different recommendations. And so when Overtures took it up, like you said, it was, it was really small edits they made to it and it put everybody at rest. One was adding one word, the word uh, um, material to the uh, material changes. So material. And then the other was like within the last year, the phrase within the last year. And suddenly everybody's fine with it. And and it just worked well. So I agree with you. I think I think the system worked, and it shows again the wisdom of sending it to one group to hash it out, and of course receive feedback and input from the groups that it affects. I mean, that, nobody would deny that. I, I would I would say, but um, yeah. So you mentioned coming prepared. Uh, you know, some guys print out the whole binder, the whole GA book, which is seven hundred pages or something. Um, I keep it on my devices, and then I print out all the overtures, the docket. I print out a lot of documents because I like still like to have paper, but I have a much smaller three-ring binder. But I do think the share file worked well, and they were trying to push us to do that. And I thought it was wise telling us why. I mean, I can't believe we spent, was it a quarter of a million dollars on paper at General Assemblies, just paper at GA? Well, that was what the stated clerk told us in his report. I was shocked too. Thought, wow, let's we should save that money. You know, I I like having you hand it out, but not that much. Let's, you know, that could that could go. I mean, that could that could be a couple of full time people, you wow, know, c- committed to something, right? If you think about it, right? You could you could pay somebody an eighty ninety thousand dollars salary, grossed up for all the taxes and everything. Yeah, I get it. And uh, you know, right, right. So how how did it? So what what do you do? Do you print? Do you print the whole? GA handbook out or do you try to use it digitally? What what do you do? I, I do not. Um, I normally like to work in hard copy, um, yes. but it's just, frankly, with all the moving around, I don't want to lug it around. Right. You know, I've usually already got a BCO and a Robert's Rules of Order and a laptop and whatever else. And so I, I, I don't want to carry that around. So I, what I usually do is down I download it to my machine. So I usually mm-hmm. bring my, uh, my MacBook because I like to have the keyboard. And I'll have a folder where I'll download, you know, everything from the share file for all the committees I'm on, whatever it is, have it all right. there local. So I'm not dependent upon the Wi-Fi. And then you try, obviously the on-site stuff, you have to take that as it comes. And so when reports are dropping while you're sitting in the meeting, that's where you have trouble. Because I, I recognize that it is technologically not that easy to set up a portable Wi-Fi network that you can have, you know, 3,000 people or so all connecting to at the same time with multiple devices. Multiple devices, yeah. right? Your phone, your tablet, your computer, yes. I, I, I found that it worked pretty well, though. I mean, it wasn't, you know, sometimes there was there was drag on it, but but quite often I could get what I needed. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of times those documents are dropping at night. And you can you can download them at night in your hotel, and, and then you can have them. You definitely got to download them. You don't want to use them. Um, off the server. So I do like uh, to print some stuff out though, you know, um, usually what if there's some key documents that I'm working for, or like if I'm going to give a speech that I know I'm going to give, you know, presenting a report or something, I'll usually have, you know, a stack of the key documents, like some, some minutes or some, you know, committee report or whatever ready to go. Cause I'm going to be able to access it and work with it much faster. So this year I did something I hadn't done before. I brought a printer to general assembly and I just had it, <laughs> I just had it set up in my room. And uh, man, that was awesome. That was the best thing ever. Wow, I never thought of I, I never thought of that. But I, I mean, you being a fancy lawyer, you probably have a high tech portable print, right? I, this was one that I bought off of Amazon for under a hundred bucks. Let me you're, well, you're in you're you're doing your law your law gig in Vegas in a hotel room. You're filming. Let's see it. I know it's. Uh, I'm actually not in a hotel room. I'm in a my local council's office right now. Um, oh, he's okay. Kind, kind enough to lend me a guest office, so I'm in a very bland looking guest office with nothing hanging on the wall. I see that. Okay. All right. You don't have it. I thought it would have been great if you pulled it out. Okay. Let's talk about, so Overture 15 last year, which for many people is, is ancient history and most people would want to leave it there, I I would guess. But I I find the dynamic of the whole thing interesting to just our polity and and what's going on in the denomination. So if, 
people, listeners will remember last year there were three overtures that we that dealt with ordination requirements and, and standards for officers in the PCA. Overture 29, Overture 30, and this Overture 15. And Overture 15 was in Overtures Committee, was originally recommended to answer by reference to, I guess, Overture 29. But there was a minority report, which meant a, uh, a sizable minority of those on the Overtures Committee disagreed and wanted the overture put forth to the assembly. And and you were the author of that, right? Uh, I was an author of it. There was a there was a group of us. You know, I, I, I initially organized the group. I, I passed around the piece of paper saying, hey, sign here if you want to be on the minority report. And then, you know, we did what you usually do, which is gather in the back of the room during the break and have a quick impromptu organizational meeting. And then usually you appoint a sort of ad hoc group of, you know, two, three, four people to do the drafting. And we did that there. So I was involved in it, but others were too. And um grateful for all the men who who participated. And they uh, they were kind enough to designate me to present it on the floor. So I became associated with it because I was the one that gave the speech. But it, it, it was the work of, of many. Definitely. Work of a committee. I, yeah. And, and thank you. That's right. So, but what was interesting about it was it is more rare or or no more common that minority reports are not going to pass the general assembly would you say that's true oh yeah no for sure i mean, gen- yeah, I mean I, generally whatever more... happens in overtures that's probably what's going to happen on the floor not always right. but often. right right and so yet the minority report on overture 15 last year passed the assembly and overture 15 went to the presbyteries and overture 15 was just very simply uh i, I don't have the language in front of me but um disqualifying saying that men who self-identify as homosexual are disqualified from office. Uh, is that basically the gist? I, yeah, I think it said, I think we amended it. I think it said describe themselves because okay. that was that whole question of identity and what does that mean? Yes. And so, okay, we so know. we said self-description we thought was a little cleaner and, and easier to right. judge, you know? Right, right. You mentioned some things off the air about O. Palmer Robertson, really with his speech last year on Overture 15. And then tell, t- t- tell our listeners what you had told me, if you remember. Yeah, well, so I, I've never had the privilege to meet Dr. Robertson. I hope to at some point. Um, but so last year, I, I presented that uh, minority report during the Overtures Committee report. So I had a 15-minute speech, right? And I'd written my speech. I'm all ready. And, I, I, and that's why I brought a printer this year, because last year I didn't have a printer. And I'm at the, <laughs> like, dealing with the front desk clerk at my hotel trying to get her to print the speech out for me, right? And so um, I, I managed to do that. And I, I, I read my speech. And then debate ensues, right? There's up to 60 minutes of debate. And um, I think uh, teaching elder Rick Phillips gave a speech in support and uh, somebody else gave a speech against. And then at, right at the center mic, right in front of me, just out of nowhere, this guy stands up and says, <laughs> Palmer Robertson, Piedmont Triad Presbytery. And uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know he was still alive. Yes. I mean, I, he, I mean, we've taught Christ and the Covenants at our, at our church, in our adult Sunday school, a number of times. Um, I co-taught it with my, my friend, teaching elder Fred Sloan a few years ago and to, to, to good effect. And I, I, we've also taught his book on the Psalms. But I, it, I, honestly, I really did not think the guy was still alive. And it was like Elijah <laughs> appearing there. It was like, oh my God. It was un- unbelievable. And he gave this tremendous speech within the three-minute the three limit. But and I Bible like, in really hand. Pleased. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's how he argue. That's how he argues. That's how he 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 debates or or discusses in 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 our presbytery Bible in hand. He is a he's a, a blessing. Uh, Doctor Robertson's become a, a a friend in our press because he's he's close by. Uh, he'll be our missions conference speaker September thirtieth and October first. You're only three and a half hours from us, Matt. You can come meet him there. All right. <laughs> And so that go that went around the presbyteries. It would have needed two thirds of the presbyteries, and I guess it got probably almost sixty percent. So it didn't get, you know, it, it failed the presbyteries. That was round two of of these kinds of overtures. But we had a round three this year, and this year's overture is overture twenty three. It's kind of targeted at dealing with the same kind of issue with much different language. Uh, and a number of overtures that were more similar to Overture 15 didn't, uh, they, they were answered by reference to this Overture 23. How's your feeling? I mean, you were the author of the Minority Report, or one of them, last year. And do you think Overture 23 this year kind of gets at what we needed to get at? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good enough. I, I mean, part of it we were trying to accomplish last year, we had sort of an acute issue. That's right. It, you know, and that acute issue is now removed. So it's taken some of the heat out of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's well, okay. You know, I, I might've preferred that, that had been resolved differently, but through the wisdom of our courts, it, it is what it is. Uh, the man in question has, has, has left the denomination as has the church. And so I think that's taken some of the, the emotion out of it. And, 
I think, you know, yeah, yeah, what we pass is all right. Because here's, here's the thing that I've gotten increasingly focused on, George, and that is this review and control thing. Because at the end of the day, we can write whatever we want in the BCO. But it doesn't mean a thing if we can't get the presbyteries to enforce it. And so we've got to focus on all of us stepping up and showing up and applying the scriptures and applying the BCO to the facts, right, and following our own rules. Yeah. And so that's that's ultimately, I think, um, what, what you saw me focus on this year was that thing in, in Metro New York um, that came out of RPR and focusing on we need to be, you know, reading the minutes, we need to be paying attention, and we need to take appropriate remedial action and exercising church discipline to circle back to what we were talking about earlier in, right. the, in those cases. So I don't, I didn't have terribly strong feelings about one overture versus another um, this year. I felt like everybody kind of heard from me on that last year and I maybe needed to step back. So it wasn't like my personal hobby horse, you know, there were a lot of other guys that had some great things to say. Um, right. And, and, and as you saw, there wasn't even a ton of debate on the floor. No, nobody, no, no. And, and, and my, my kind of point is I, I don't want to add, and I know, no matter what side of the PCA you're on, I think this sentiment is like, we don't want to add to the BCO things that aren't necessary. And I'm just not sure what this year's Overture 23 does that Overture 29 and, and 30, uh, 31 that we've passed now don't do already. But uh, I'm not looking to make a, a fight about it. I was just curious um, about that. And I love this focus on review and control that you're having. I mean, people that don't agree with us in the denomination they called it like so you and i are happy about this and others called it the authoritarian general assembly but i i just called it the, the assembly of transparency and accountability uh in in our in our polities terms it's review and control and and so there was overture seven which we've already discussed which requires agencies and permanent committees to uh r report in their minutes major policy changes but also if the general assembly has said they need to do something they need to record how they've fulfilled that there's also uh the two sjc cases coming out of rpr so that's another way that our system works and then there was another one i i would say is is kind of that R ruf affiliation agreement so the the permanent committee is ruf permanent is it a committee or an agency is that the same thing I think it's an agency. I mean, they're, yeah. they're functionally interchangeable, but the terms are used differently um, in the argument. Right, uh, yeah. I don't so, have a book in front of me. Sorry. Right, so their affiliation agreement, which is how RUF chapters exist within presbyteries, and, and you know, there's three entities. There's RUF, there's the minister and the ministry, and then there's the presbytery. And so they changed the affiliation agreement, and uh, the assembly had questions about that and, and said they got to come back and... I'm not exactly 100% clear what they got to do, but again, the, the assembly exercise, exercise review and control, and we're going to see something next year about it. And so those are three things. I'm, I'm not sure. Were there others, would you say, that took place at this assembly? Well, I think the, you know, the R, R, just RPR generally. I mean, RPR put in a, a report that was 165 pages, the longest RPR report, I think, in history. Mm-hmm. Right. And what we saw, so I've, I've, I was focused on this. So I volunteered for RPR this year. It was my first year doing it. And we showed up and we, you know, we went, I think we oh, so you were on first... RPR? Wait a minute, I was, you were on I R... was. So you were on Overtures and RPR. That's awesome. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, and, and I'm on CCB. So that was, it was a fair amount of pre-assembly work <laughs> for me this year. Somewhat to my wife's chagrin. Um, but, you know, we, we, we dug in on that and, we went from like I think 9 a.m. to about 10 p.m. the first day of RPR. We convened at eight the next day and went till after 10 that night, and then we convened the next morning early and went wow. till noon. And it was intense, you know. And and that's and, and for those who haven't done it, there's also subcommittees that are formed. They call re teams, where every presbytery gets assigned out to a team of three or four elders to read and report on in advance. And then that team puts together a subcommittee report, and those then get all like merged together into one big document that we then review as a group and step through line by line. Um, but there were a lot of exceptions to substance this year. Yeah, there's, there's some, there's some moving pieces within RPR as to kind of like what's an exception of form versus an exception of substance. Yeah. And, you know, an exception of form gets reported back to the presbytery, but they don't have to do anything. It's just sort of like advice. It's like, yeah, you didn't write this down right, but you know, it's not that big a deal. And the REO has some definitions. I don't have it in front of me in terms of what, how to think of one versus the other. Whereas once something becomes an exception substance, then the Presbyterian is required to write back and respond back to the General Assembly the, the next year. 
So that's kind of an important dividing line. And we saw a lot of things this year that were being treated as form that maybe in previous years would have been substance. Uh, a lot of them had to do what, with like what, what would we prefer? So you're, this year, more things were treated as form instead of substance. No, more things were substance instead of form. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, and I'm, so if if you you're said it if GA way. is exercising, I, I may have misspoken. And I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. G, if GA is exercising more review and control, or certainly more control, you're going to see more exceptions of substance. Yes. Yes, and that's what I thought. Okay, so and and, and let me kind of summarize that for listeners, particularly newer people. So Presbytery takes minutes. And I think most Presbyteries meet quarterly. I think probably maybe all of them do. So there's there's at least four sets of minutes over the last year, but some Presbyteries may have other called meetings or whatever. Those minutes all go to the General Assembly to the, well, to the review of Presbytery records, which actually meets before General Assembly. And they go through the minutes and make sure things were recorded properly and there's nothing happening that shouldn't be happening. And that's what Matt is saying, that when when things, when there's some misses either in the reporting or in what occurred, they are ruled either as exceptions of form, which are, well, I'll let you repeat that in a second, or exceptions of substance. So tell us one more time the difference between the exception of form and the exception of substance. Well, so there's there's really three categories. I didn't mention the first one, which is a notation. So notation is the lowest level. And a notation is just like a typo. It's just like, hey, you misspelled this word on this page, and that's it. You're just telling them that. It's just, yes. you know, do this different. Then the next level is the exception of form. And again, I'm, I'm not, I don't have my book in front of me, so I'm not reading the definition right out of the REO. I encourage listeners to look it up. But an exception of, of form is has to do with kind of the way you documented something. Maybe you didn't document it correctly, but it's not substantive. It's not something that we think needs to be addressed or corrected. So here it is for information. Do better in the future. But there's no response required. And those don't even go in the report to the General Assembly. They go to the Presbytery, but everybody else doesn't see it. Mm -hmm. And then once something crosses the line to an exception of substance, it then gets reported out. And keep in mind also, right, that these reports have to be – has to be voted on by the assembly. Just because RPR says it, that doesn't make it so until until the report is ratified by the assembly and passed. And you saw some debate this year on the floor where there were some efforts to amend some of what went on and what was in the report, right? So, but that happens. And then the, that presbytery will then have to write back the next year and answer the exceptions of substance. And typically the clerk will draft them, present them to the presbytery, the presbytery will vote. And, you know, then those responses get sent back. And then part of what you do in RPR is you review the prior year's responses. Mm. Say, oh, well, from last year, they got these three exceptions of substance. Here's what they wrote back. Do we find those answers acceptable? And if they're not, then you make them do it again. And that can go on repeatedly for several years. Um, sometimes it goes, sometimes not. And sometimes it can end up if, if we feel like there's a presbytery that's just being obstinate or just, you know, is not really in submission to the General Assembly or just says, yeah, we didn't do anything wrong. We don't agree with you. There's that option to make that 40-5 referral to the SJC. It's rare, but it can happen. Right. And so what Matt's describing there occurred in, in two cases. Well, I think maybe one case and one case went straight to the SJC. So Again, if, if there's an issue, it takes a year to get an answer on it because it, it goes back to the presbyteries. The presbyteries report back to it, and it doesn't get looked at until the next General Assembly. But in, in this year's case, uh, at least one of them, what was going on in Metro New York, um, was serious enough that it was referred right to the SJC, and that's one of the ones that, that had debate. And that, again, shows that our, our people in our system are taking our system seriously. And so I, I think that's... That's good. I I think it was two years ago, so three assemblies ago, wasn't something coming out of RPR with a presbytery that had forbidden a candidate from teaching his exceptions, and that went back to the presbytery, back to the General Assembly, back to the presbytery, back to the General Assembly, and finally it just came to the floor of the assembly. Do you remember that? I do remember that. It, was, it came out of Cavalry Presbytery. And it involved a, uh, I don't remember what the exception was, but there was a man who had a stated difference and the presbytery ruled that it was acceptable, but they instructed him not to teach it. And that had been their practice on other occasions. And there was a, a view on RPR uh, for several years that that wasn't allowed. 
that you had to either take the guy or leave him. And then if you let him in, he got to teach whatever he wanted or what, you know, if he could teach his, his state of difference. Yeah. And so, um, that I think we, I think we voted on that three different years on the floor of GA. And the first time the view prevailed that it was an exception of substance, that it was wrong for Calvary Presbytery to tell him he could teach his um, exception. And then it happened again the next year and same deal, similar vote. And then finally the third year, RPR was recommending that they be cited to appear before the SJC, and that year was a different assembly. Different people showed up, tide was starting to turn, and that year um, Calvary was vindicated. Yes. Well, I, I think even that, because that was the tide was turning with that assembly, and I think that just shows as much as we didn't like the controversy of what was happening, particularly with side B and, and revoice and, and all that. Like, I think it woke up a lot of people, you know, hey, honestly, it woke me up. I mean, I, I was a ruling elder before I was a teaching elder in my previous church. I just, I just assumed the teaching elders did the work of the, the, the church denominationally, you know, um, that's part of my heart behind this podcast is to help, to help ruling elders see the importance of being churchmen, in the courts of the church beyond their own. So what what are some encouragements or overall perceptions, thoughts about this year's assembly and as we look to next year's? Well, I, th I think you mentioned the RUF thing. That's something that I'm very interested in for next year's uh, assembly. Um, I don't have right now that affiliation agreement. Um, I, I would love to get my hands on a, on a copy of it so I could read it and talk I'll intelligently it, about it. I'll send it to you. I have it. Okay, well, that, that'd be great. But I think one of, one of that the issues of that goes to is one of the big things I'm thinking about right now in terms of the church, and that is that we need to work to protect and guard the integrity of our church courts. You know, there has been a lot of tweeting about the church courts in the last few years, and um, a lot of people talking about cases. I mean, and that's something said that's good. I'm glad people are interested, but we need to do things decently and in order, right? And I've certainly been a somewhat outspoken advocate that you know, we need to expect the SJC to, you know, follow the operating manual and do things decently in order. And I'm very grateful for my, my brothers on the SJC. It is a ton of work. I'm not sure if everybody appreciates that before you can sit on an SJC case, you have to swear that you've read the record of the case. As long as the record of the case is three or 4,000 pages. So to, wow. to be, on a, be on a panel, it's a big deal. And so when, the, when others of us who aren't involved in those cases read the report and scratch our heads and have questions about it, well, that's certainly our right, right? We're part of the assembly, we're, we're presbyters, and, and we should be interested. But we need to keep in mind that if we haven't read the record of the case, we haven't seen the evidence, we don't have the same perspective that the brothers who, who were involved in it at the SJC level did. And so that, that, that's one thing. And I think at the, at the presbytery level, um, I was just, just finished being involved in a uh, fairly substantial uh, discipline trial that I was prosecuting mm -hmm. on behalf of the presbytery. I'm not going to say anything about it because the decision is still forthcoming and it may go to the SJC. But that that process of doing an ecclesiastical trial, I've done many civil trials, I've never done an ecclesiastical trial, just really got me thinking about it that, you know, it's good. It's good that we do this. We don't want to have to do it often because we don't want to see these cases. But as we, we spoke earlier, we have to do church discipline to be the church. And sometimes that means we got to go all the way and do a trial. So I've been thinking about what are the kind of structure of that and the checks and balances of it? You know, we have, we need to have provisions to make sure that when someone, particularly an elder and, and maybe particularly a, a teaching elder who's installed as a pastor, when an accusation is raised, that we handle that properly, right? And that means in my mind, we're not gonna lynch the guy. We're not gonna just, just th throw him out of his job because somebody made an accusation. You know, we're gonna do things decently in order and we're gonna have due process. And we're going to, you know, we're ultimately, if we need to, we're going to do an investigation and then maybe a trial. But we're also not going to sweep it under the rug and ignore it, right? We're going to take, take accusations and charges seriously, and we're going to hear those who are complaining, and we're going to adjudicate the matter. You know, we're not going to err too far in either direction. So we're going to do the biblical thing, which is justice, and seek justice through our courts and through our rules. And so I think the RUF thing bears on that because the, the issue was does RUF have the power to fire an RUF campus minister, a teaching elder, without going through process in his presbytery? In my view, uh, the answer should be no. Um, just like your church can't fire you without talking to the presbytery and without going through the disciplinary process, I think that should apply to other teaching elders that are in other church calls as well. And so I, I'm sure, and I don't, I say I'm sure, I strongly suspect 
that there are, you know, a few real issues that turn up every year with respect to RUF because you've got, you know, young guys working with a bunch of young women in the college environment. I'm sure there's temptation and I'm sure there's sin and error that occurs and we need to deal with that. But I don't think that should just be dealt with administratively by RUF. I think the procedural protections that are um, in the BCO need to be available to those men to be entitled to a 312 investigation and entitled to a trial um, if, if need be. So again, I don't know a lot about it now. I haven't even read the agreement, but it's something that I'm interested in looking forward to next year's assembly and thinking about how to make sure that the courts of the church are, are robust and just in terms of how we adjudicate things. Yes, that's interesting. So I, I will send it to you, um, but I don't remember how I got it. I mean, you know, went out to the presbytery somehow. Uh, but it wasn't just even fire. It was also transfer. And so I spoke with one RUF campus minister that was like, "What does this mean they could just move me from this chapter to another? I mean, when, when RUF guys take a call to a college campus they're not assigned it they're 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 often given a you know a choice between ones they can choose what what i think is going to be interesting though is what what happens like most presbyteries or half the presbyteries have already signed this thing and so i think we were left kind of in limbo coming out of this assembly like what this vote really means for the i mean these are contracts that are already out there already signed and and if the assembly decides like right now, it's not an approved agreement by our denomination. Now, anybody could sign anything. You know, any presbytery could sign any agreement. To but I, I think there's a gap there. You may want to think of that for like for your constitutional. Like, how do we how do we prevent that in the future? Where I mean, a presbytery can sign an agreement with RUF. Now, what if the assembly says it's not a valid agreement? Does that make the agreement null and void? Well, we could, the assembly could certainly direct RUF to repudiate the contract. And I think we could say the same for the Presbytery, right? I mean, ultimately, the I don't know. And I'm not going to talk about that anymore. It's a thorny constitutional issue. Um, and I think what you saw on the floor of GA this year were a bunch of people trying to ask questions of the moderator and seek his opinions. And I have tremendous respect for, for T.E. Greco um, and for his opinions. But ultimately... You know, an opinion that he offers on the floor of GA is just that. It's not binding on anybody. It's just what he thinks. And he, you know, he's, he may well be right. He probably is. So we'll have to see what happens, right? I mean, that may, that's something that could come up through one of the other, one of the review and control processes. It could come up through RPR. It could come up through an SJC case. It's mo most likely going to come up through the Committee of Commissioners next year on, on RUF. Um, you know, one of, one of our constitu interesting constitutional things, and if you listen to, uh, to Palmer Robertson's um, speech, that he was recorded and put out on PresbyCast, where he was comments on the founding of the PCA. One of the things he noted um, was that the idea of having a committee of commissioners that reviews the permanent committee was an innovation when the PCA was founded. That's right. Because right? it was concerned that these national boards had too much power and there had been aggregation of, you know, of power and some leftward drift. Some, maybe I should say some anti-biblical drift on those um, on those national agencies. And so we wanted to avoid that. And, you know, I don't, as I sit here, know that I can recite to you the changes that have been made over time to the BCO and the RAO with respect to how those committees and commissioners work. But I think we have maybe at times, you know, been instructed that you're just supposed to sit there and wave at it as it goes by. And we don't want the committee commissioners to do anything to derail the recommendations of the permanent committee. And I think over the last few years, we've seen a move um, in the other direction. You might remember uh, maybe it was three general assemblies ago when the MTW um, committee of commissioners, you know, uh, had, had had an alternative recommendation to reject the language in the MTW operating manual that yes. allowed them to have um, have have women in uh, authority of ordained elders, and you know, that was a big deal. You remember hearing the uh, chairman of the permanent committee uh, get up on the floor and argue that this was a terrible precedent. Not a one misquote him, but you know, mm -hmm. please don't do this. This you know, this isn't right. You shouldn't tell us how to how to operate. Um, and it's in a minute, so we can can see it. But 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 ultimately, you know, that didn't prevail. The view prevailed and said that the GA no does in fact have the ability to tell MTW how to operate, and that's what happened. And and that's good. That's that's what we want to see. It doesn't mean we need to micromanage every decision, but ultimately, the the power, the sovereignty, if you will, within the church rests with the assembly and not with the staff um, or the permanent committee. That's that. that's right. And 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 I got to say, like I I totally agree. I was I was happy about that decision. I'm happy about what's you know this what's happening with the RUF affiliation agreement through the assembly because I believe in in that. But I, I I have a little bit of sympathy for 
like every one of these committees and, and permanent committees and agencies are like major corporations to put it in crass terms i mean multi-million dollar ones every one of these you know mtw mna ruf and so i i get the difficulty but like they have to be able to operate they can't they can't wait one year if they want to do something you know and so i i do think i i don't know if the right if the right thing is they just operate and then we, you know when when the assembly comes up we tell them yes or no or or we come up with better parameters around what kinds of decisions they can do in their policy manual on their own and what kind they need to get approved by the assembly but i absolutely agree that they they report to the assembly and the assembly has an, an overall say in in that but you, you know what i'm saying like when, when like i i don't know off the i don't have it in front of me like what mtw's budget is but what is it? It's, it's got to be. Is it a hundred million dollars? Is it? I don't know. I think I think somebody told me that RUF actually has the biggest budget and the most money of any of in the permanent committees or agencies. I mean, I think somebody said MTW has something like six hundred missionaries on the field, something like that. So I wouldn't say that any of them would be what I, equivalent to what I would call a major corporation or a large business. Well, they're um, not billion dollar. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, but but you know that said, yes, there's significant operations, but I think we also have to remember the role of the permanent committee. Right. The permanent committee is men elected from the General Assembly. Right. We have that nominating committee report every year and we vote for men to go yes. and be on the permanent committee. So, you know, that's part of the review and control, too. Right. There's multiple layers of it. Right. So the staff of each permanent committee agency, they work for that permanent committee. The permanent committee makes a recommendation every year, not on every single employee, but on the head of the permanent committee. That's always part of what they report back is that we, you know, rehire whoever it is for another year. And. So ultimately, the committee commissioners could reject that, could say, no, we want to propose an alternative recommendation that we hire somebody else. Now, I don't know if that's ever happened because the problem is you're sort of flat footed there in the committee commissioners. and You don't happen to have another candidate handy. But, you know, it's that's why it's a, it's a multi-level thing. So we, we look for the permanent committees to also exercise review and control. And one of the things we might think about is if we're looking to elect men to those committees is make sure that there's a diversity of thought and opinion on them. Right. I think with some of them, it has a tendency to be kind of an inside um, committee of the people who are already very interested in the work of what's going on and maybe they've been around for a while and they kind of know everybody and hey that's wonderful I, I i love to see our brethren working passionately for our ministries but maybe every once in a while it's time for some some new blood and outside perspective to come in and take a look at what's uh what's happening for yes. better review and control right right and 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 all this goes to kind of the theme that we've been talking about all, all along like being involved and and putting and being caring enough to put the right people in the right places to do the review and control, you know, um, whether it, whether it's the, the right people on RPR, the right people on nominating committee to nominate the right people to the committees. Like if, if you care about the denomination, then you should be involved in that wherever you are uh, on the spectrum. So, uh, and let me absolutely. say this, if you're a ruling elder, put your hand up. If you, if you look at it, it's way harder to get on these committees as a TE than it That's is right. as an RE because there just aren't that many REs who want to do it. Yeah. So you can have a really disproportionate influence if you're just willing to show up. That, that, I mean, that's right. Even in our presbytery with great ruling elder involvement, it's it's not um, – we don't have as many ruling elders go in a general assembly. I mean, our church always sends them. But uh, So if, if you're a ruling elder in a presbytery and you want to sit on a committee of commissioners – you're almost guaranteed you're going to be able to. I mean, <laughs> um, the you know get your pick of the your first two choices anyway. Uh, so Matt, as we as we wrap up, what are some like what's your overall perception or encouragement to people here based on GA and even looking to the next one? Well, I, I got to tell you, George, I, I am deeply encouraged over the last couple of years. And I know there's others who were discouraged, but I you know I'm I'm very focused on keeping the church pure and moving it forward. You know, we're under tremendous cultural pressure here in the United States. Right. We, have, we have a culture that has utterly abandoned cultural Christianity. And I'm not whether that's good or bad. That's just what's happened, right? There was a time, even when I was a boy, when it seemed like most people, at least in the South, went to church somewhere, some sort, at least sometimes. And now that's just gone. You know, now you don't go to church unless you're a real Christian. I, I, man, I'm not afraid to say it. Everybody's afraid to say it. I'm not afraid to say it. Cultural Christianity is better than paganism for the planet. I'll say it. There you go. Well, it, gets it doesn't you that save people. 
It does exact absolutely second use of the law. It doesn't save people. People's hearts still can be far from the Lord, but it provides a better living environment for human flourishing because there's a recognition of the 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 God's law and the second use of the law, the restraining effects of con- and common grace in society. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that, George. What I would say in response, though, is from an evangelism standpoint, if we're looking to make disciples, sometimes it's helpful that you don't have to convince the guy that he's not a Christian first. I, I get it. I, I get it. I get um, it. So uh, right. do with that what you will. I felt like when I was in New York in the late 90s, I saw like a preview of this, right? Because New York was already there, kind of where yes. we are now, other places. Yeah. Um, so, But I, I'm encouraged um, by where the PCA is. I think we've seen a, a, a resurgence of interest in the confessions and biblical fidelity and a focus on that, on the, on the purity of the church. And that's not to say that, you know, we're always going to have people that have slightly different focuses, slightly different, you know, philosophies of ministry. I don't love that term, but that's what people, people say. Um, but at the end of the day, um, we've got to be a church that's about the Bible, you know, first and foremost. Amen. And, and our common confession is what holds us together. You know, we're not a loose affiliation of churches. We're a connectional church that shares a common confession. And so I'm very encouraged by where we are and where we're going. Uh, I don't know where the world's going. I don't know where, where, where the Lord is going gonna, is gonna to take us. I think we may have some suffering and some tribulation um, ahead of us. Um, but I do know what happens in the end because I read the back of the book. Awesome. Yeah, Christ is Lord. So commitment to the Bible and the, and the Lordship of Christ in our, in our confessional commitments, yes. You, see, you say you teach apologetics at your church, right? I do, I do. I've taught it to our, our high school now uh, twice. I try to do it every two or three years because I want every kid that goes out of our church and goes off to college to be able to give an answer when challenged. I love it. Oh, and then I... I'm doing a six-week series for our adult Sunday school right now. Um, it's available on Sermon Audio if anybody wants to check it out with slots. There you go. Wait, how do, how do they find that on Sermon Audio, Matt? Uh, you could go to Sermon Audio and just search my name. I think there's two people named Fender on there, and one of them's me. Okay. Um, and it's a mix of a few sermons mixed in with some Sunday school classes over a number of years. But, okay. Uh, so do you, you, you preach also at your church? From time to time. I, I, I love this. So that, that's it's such a great, you're a teacher and a, and a preacher. You're, you're, you're doing it all. You're involved in the I courts mean, of the church. I have it's, tremendous respect. I mean, I, our, our pastor, Dennis Bullock at All Saints, is a, is a tremendous man, tremendous preacher. And I mostly just want to encourage him. I want to you know hold up his arms like Moses and, and let him get up there and preach the word every week. Um, once in a while, he's on vacation. You know, I'll, uh, I'll try to step in and, and be yeah. a distant second. Yeah. Well, th- this is really good because it shows listeners to like the heart, your pastoral heart. I mean, you, you're a you're a churchman in the courts of our church, but you're you're a, a shepherd at heart, and that's what the calling of of, of our ruling elders is. Awesome. Well, well, we gotta go. This is uh, we, we are at time. Uh, you, you'd be a guy I'd love to hang out with more. So I'm sure we'll we'll maybe do some more of these if you're willing. Matt. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on, George. Have a good day. Absolutely. You too.